Wednesday, November 3rd. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, the one and only Asit Sharma. Thanks for being here. Chris, thank you for having me, sir. Uh, we've got ride sharing, we've got the stock of the day. We're going to begin with the three alarm fire that is Zillow. Uh, the third quarter results that Zillow posted after the closing bell on Tuesday kind of don't matter. I, I'm sorry to say that, Zillow, but they kind of don't matter because the company announced it is getting out of the home buying business altogether and it is also laying off 25% of its employees. And at the moment, shares of Zillow are down more than 18%, hitting a 52 week low. Um, we can go over the results if you want, but um, to me, this uh, announcement about the home buying business answers the question that we raised a couple of weeks ago when they announced that they were pausing it. Because they said, we're pausing this for the rest of 2021, which was a 10-week window. And at the time, we were like, OK, so at some point in the 10, next 10 weeks, we're going to get an announcement, right? We're gonna, they're going to say it's either back on in January or they're going to push it back. It didn't occur to me that they would just shut the whole thing down altogether. I know, right? The other shoe drops with a huge thud. This is very uh, surprising in some ways, Chris, but maybe not so surprising in the others. I want to say here, this is not peanuts. We're talking about a $300 million write-down of inventory, um, additional charges related to homes that are under contract of $240 to $265 million, and also pre-tax restructuring charges estimated at approximately $175 million to $230 million. This is hundreds of millions of dollars, all told. And a hit to this business model, which was predicated on being able to buy homes at reasonable prices and flip them at a profit. A couple of things that I wanted to point out here and then get your thoughts. Zillow actually had an algorithm, has an algorithm, which helps it price homes for offer. It's related to the one that is used by people who own homes when they take a look at their Zillow estimates. This is similar technology. This was supposed to be very, very good at giving them an edge in the market. The opposite seems to be true. In major metropolitan areas, Zillow was pouring in over the last few quarters and helping to drive up demand <laughs> and drive up prices in markets where it was supposedly using its technology to find uh, reasonable prices. What I am curious about here is that management didn't take any lessons from the Great Recession, in that home prices can be very volatile and may continue to be volatile for years, despite the fact that we do have chronic undersupply in the housing industry. It's not a straight-up arc of housing prices any longer. And there is something disingenuous here. Uh, management today, or in their press release, is sort of blaming the unpredictability of these prices. I think that was apparent from the start. We're talking about 7,000 homes now that it has to out, uh, offload uh, from its balance sheet. Chris, am I overthinking this or, or maybe putting too fine a point on it? Do we need to give management some more credit than, than I am so far? <laughs> I, no, I don't think we do. I, I, I think that they need to earn that back. Um, again, they, they came out a couple of weeks ago and said, we're pausing this program. 
and uh, and now it's just being shut down. And thank you for reminding everyone that um, it costs money to do this. Anytime we talk about, uh, you know, even if it's the right move, and let's just grant them the benefit of the doubt and say, okay, this is the right move for them to shut this down. It is still costing them hundreds of millions of dollars to do that, to do the right thing. Um, so I. I don't think we're being too harsh on management, and I think 2022 is the year that they need to work very hard to convince people that their underlying business is a strong one, a viable one, and it's growing and therefore worthy of investment dollars. I agree with you, Chris. You and I talk a lot about efficient use of capital and smart capital allocation. You know, there's thousands of investors in the real estate industry, from individual investors who buy and flip homes, to partnerships, to institutional investors that buy and sell residential and commercial real estate. So many of these entities are extremely careful with their capital. They don't rush in and pour money into metropolitan areas, getting to get into bidding frenzies, and go beyond reasonable limits on purchasing, you just have to question the way management tried to get into the iBuying space. I think maybe they felt the competitive pressures, they're not the only player, or they weren't the only player in this space. And I don't think this means that other companies that are engaging in iBuying necessarily have to move out here. This seems limited to Zillow, but it does make me question the decision-making component of the management team and the board. and extending that to maybe an investment thesis. Here's a question that you asked me when we were uh, planning to talk this morning. Would you, Chris, uh, maybe take a look at the stock price today and, and see a potential bargain and, and sort of hop in and, and buy today? I'm curious. I, I understand anyone who is thinking that, because this, this is a stock that's you know at a 52-week low and you know possibly going even lower by the end of the day. And so I understand anyone who looks at this and says, "Look, this isn't a startup; it's an established company, an established brand. Um, there is something to the underlying business. Maybe, you know, it wouldn't be the first time um, bad news caused a stock to sell off, and maybe there was some zealousness where stocks get oversold." All of that said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not interested in this um, at this lower price. What about you? Same. I want to uh, take a look over maybe two quarters to see the dregs of this decision playing out. Shouldn't have a huge impact on the PNL for a forward-looking investor, but this really is going to hobble them for the near term. And I think this will also just give investors a pause, maybe who've been on the sidelines next quarter. Uh, take a look at the core business's results, understand their strategy for competing in the marketplace. But you have that overlay that this is um, a company that was very aggressive in trying to compete. And you have to be careful when you now look at that profit and loss statement, look at that balance sheet, the statement of cash flows going forward. You have to incorporate this, I believe, uh, into any investment thesis. Just there hasn't been um, evidence of the soundest decision making here. I'm cautious on this one going forward. Don't own it. Have been on the sidelines, but not intending to buy uh, soon. 
in three months when they come out with their annual report. That, that should be the title, uh, the dregs <laughs> of this decision. I think that is the True. title they should slap on their annual report. The stock of the day is Bed Bath & Beyond. Um, earlier, the stock was up more than 50%. It is, it is fallen from that. It is, it is now, as we are talking, only up 20%. This is because Bed Bath & Beyond announced an in-store partnership with Kroger, which is the lar largest grocery chain in America. Uh, CEO Mark Trenton also said that the company's share buyback program was ahead of schedule. These are two bits of good news. Um, I'm assuming the fact that Bed Bath & Beyond is one of the most heavily shorted stocks on Wall Street is why this stock spiked the way it did this morning. I mean, again, these are good data points. I don't know that it's it's certainly not 50% better <laughs> uh, data points, and maybe not even 20% better, but good for the shareholders. Yeah, I wonder if they're even uh, 100% better, because when I saw this uh, news, I think yesterday, uh, when this news came out, Bed Bath & Beyond stock was spiking over 100% in the yeah, after hours. It was crazy. Yeah, after hours. Uh, but sure, we have to recognize here that Bed Bath & Beyond is still a long-term turnaround story. They're not out of the woods yet. Uh, CEO Mark Tritton, I think, has done a, a very decent job of being disciplined in reducing store count, in uh, disposing of those non-core brands. The news on the accelerated share repurchase, for those of you who don't follow this company closely, uh, isn't itself like a wasteful uh, expenditure. This represents the last bit of share repurchases um, that the company has been funding through selling off its non-core assets over the last several years. So that's, I think, a good piece. Also reduces that outstanding share count. And uh, I like this baby step in the right direction. I say baby step because um, one of the things Kroger gets out of this is um, more extension into the home products and baby products sphere, trying for them to move beyond the grocery channel. So, what this deal does is it gives Kroger um, a sort of omni-channel presence, and they'll be able to feature Bed Bath & Beyond gear on their e-commerce sites. And of course, good for Bed Bath & Beyond to get that brand extension. Again, I think we have to also remember that the short sellers are in this stock for a reason. For a while, it has been seen as a retailer that might or might not make it. I'm on the side that long-term Bed Bath & Beyond does survive. I like the way that um, Mark Tritton has been disciplined enough to trim that store count down from about 1,000 uh, branded Bed Bath & Beyond stores to, I think, uh, roughly 800. And I also think that strategic collaborations are the way to go. It's a capitalite model. So, this is one company that is worth taking a longer term look at. It's not one that I own, Chris. I wrote about it at the beginning of the year. I thought they were moving in the right direction. Finally, I'll say about Bed Bath & Beyond is they were briefly a meme stock uh, during the, the heyday of meme stocks in the post-COVID environment. That seems to have turned into just a more general skepticism on this stock. And I think today they show short sellers that they're not done yet, and um, it might not be the, the best decision to short this stock heavily. Although the turnaround ultimately um, is is uh, something that we'll still have to see whether it pans out or not. I'm on the yeah. side that it will. 
Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I think Triton is one of the main reasons people should think twice about shorting this stock. I mean, you used the word discipline, and I think that's spot on because from the moment he became CEO, it was clear that he knew what he was in for, um, had a vision, uh, had uh, a plan to sort of methodically, as you said, reduce the store count, uh, look to strike partnerships like this, look to boost their e-commerce sales. And, um, you know, he's, he's someone who very much appears to be um, in it for the long haul. So, I, I, I think, based on Triton alone, I'd, I'd be wary of shorting this stock. Um, and, it, you know, we'll see how this plays out uh, in the same way that, you know, we were talking about give Zillow a couple of quarters before you decide whether or not to jump back into that stock. Um, I think over the next couple of quarters, it'll be interesting to see how much fruit is born from this partnership with Kroger. Because um, it's you know it's not going to be immediate, but it, it could be a nice win for both businesses. Um, we'll wrap up with Lyft because shares of Lyft are up eight percent. Third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected, and revenue was up more than seventy percent year over year. Um, you and I were talking earlier. I, I mentioned this. This is one of those things that Lyft does, you know, maybe once a year where they put up really good numbers. And it's like, that's great. Can you do this a few times in a row? Because they haven't been able to do that yet. And it's, it's, and I don't own Uber or Lyft. Um, and part of it is because I, it's hard for me to see where they are going over the next three years. I know where they both want to go 10 years from now. But the, the immediate future always seems cloudy with these businesses, to me anyway. I hear you, Chris. Can you string just two of these quarters together? <laughs> Give me three. <laughs> Give me three quarters like this, and then you have my attention. Uh, you know, between these two arch rivals, Lyft and Uber, I like Lyft's ability to be a little bit more dynamic in their pricing. And by that, I don't mean that um, they're out there in a methodical way capitalizing on surge pricing. I actually think Uber does a better job of that. But I think their supply dynamics, uh, their ability to recruit new drivers to the platform, their understanding of, of how to capture new customers with reasonable pricing and then have moderate pricing increases when needed after loyalty established is, is very keen. To me, they're maybe a more viable model than Uber. They, they burn through less money. Uh, that's to start. What I really liked about this quarter, revenue grew 73% over year, which is to be expected because we've got the, the comparison to last year of a COVID-inflected world. We have less of that this year. But you know, contribution margin, which for all practical purposes, it's sort of easy to think of this as maybe like a gross margin, not quite the same. But it really shows you how much uh, more activity and pricing are contributing to the company's uh, gross profits. That increased at a rate even in advance of this revenue expansion. So their contribution margin grew about 106% year over year. And that shows me that the pricing models that I experienced personally a few weeks ago when I was in Chicago are at play on a larger scale. Uh, just a quick story anecdote here. I came into Midway Airport in the evening. This was about eight at night. I had 
the two apps lined up. I looked at Uber to get from the airport to the downtown River North area where I, where I was going to stay for six days it was going to cost a hundred bucks, a, a huge surge pricing. I ended up paying about thirty three bucks, I think, for my lift for the same ride that evening. And I never looked at the Uber app after that for the six days. I was taking public transport and then I was taking Lyft. And there were one or two times where I saw the, a bit of surge pricing, but I was more than happy to pay that. <laughs> so I think we see uh, this agility in how to price uh, playing out. And we also see the company's agility, again, with recruiting new drivers onto the platform, filling that supply side uh, very nicely. We, sh we would be remiss not to point out that in the first nine months of this year, Lyft has burned through about $75 million in operating cash. But you know, that's a lot better than the $1.1 billion they burned through in the same period last year. So there, there is perhaps some long, long-term light at the end of the tunnel here. I don't see it being a gap-positive, profitable model anytime soon. But I am curious, Chris, you mentioned 10 years. Do you visualize a future where in 10 years, Lyft and or Uber might be persuasive investments? Uh, yes, but they, they, they keep pushing that out further and further. <laughs> Um, uh, you know, so, which is why they they never really make it to my watch list. And these are these are two businesses that I think, um, if they get to that point where the economics become very attractive, as an investor, I'm happy to be a little bit late on that one. I don't need to be early on either of these investments, just because I think the like I said, the next few years are just going to be more of the same. I I think that's sage advice. The song that comes to mind is Elton John's I'm Still Standing. If that's being played in the context of Lyft in a few years, they may be worth looking at. I have my eye, uh, eye on their autonomous unit, uh, the self-driving unit that is going to take, again, years to come to fruition, but they've been investing in a meaningful way, not putting more capital than they can bear into that idea, but there's perhaps a future in which Lyft finally finds an equation that works. They are perhaps better at Uber than uh, in understanding driver economics. So, making sure that drivers can make money, <laughs> you need drivers to make money, you need riders to feel like they have a reasonable deal for the platform itself to have any chance of making money long term. So, those elements seem to be there. You add on maybe an autonomous portion, which theoretically really contributes to that contribution margin over time. You could see this as an investable idea in five to ten years, but Chris, I love what you said. I mean, why even try to be early on this? You know, come in when it's a more uh, probable type of equation and an investment that has a clearer return on it. That's a charm. Great talking to you. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Really appreciate it. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Rick Engdahl. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.